Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, the Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. The news in the past week has been all about one company, credit tracking agency Equifax, and the massive data breach at the firm, which first came to light earlier this month. In the past few days, we've learned more about the timeline of that incident, which stretches back to May, and about the source of the compromise, a six-month-old vulnerability in an open-source platform known as Apache Struts. We've also seen the first departures from Equifax as a result of the breach. Both the company's chief information and chief security officers announced their retirement from the company last week. In this week's podcast, we're going to go deep inside the Equifax breach. First, looking at the how of the attack. We'll be speaking with two experts on the subject of web application security, Tyler Shields and Andrew Peterson, both of the firm Signal Sciences. And as more companies come to rely on open source software, where, like Apache Struts, Mike Pittenger of the firm Black Duck talks to us about the difficulty that companies have keeping track of and monitoring all the open source software that they're using. And finally, the departure of Equifax's chief security officer, Susan Malden, in the wake of the breach wasn't surprising. What was surprising was the controversy that erupted online about Ms. Malden's undergraduate and graduate degrees in music composition. In the final segment of our show, we're going to talk with two experts on the topic of educational and gender diversity within the information security field, Chris Roberts, the hacker known as Sid Dragon One, and Deidre Diamond, the founder and CEO of a placement firm, CyberSN. But first, Equifax said that the hack that allowed remote attackers to make off with data on 143 million people began with the exploitation of a six-month-old hole in Apache struts. Tyler Shields and Andrew Peterson of Signal Sciences say that's not unusual. In fact, 40% of breaches begin with attacks on applications. To start off our podcast, I asked Tyler Shields, who is Signal Sciences' VP of Marketing and Strategy, to explain what Apache Struts is and why it's so popular. Apache Struts is one of the underlying, commonly used underlying frameworks that uh, are used to build a number of the more modern web application models today. It's uh, it's essentially a framework that allows developers to speed up their development process by making calls to essentially pre-created routines that deliver on what they need to deliver within the application itself. Part of the, the issue with any component of code that you include into your application is if you haven't written it yourself, you have to inherently trust that the author of the code that you're including has done appropriate risk assessments and appropriate security controls to the application that they've built or to the code components that they've built. And what we see here is a... Um, a transition, if if you will, a transition of risk from the Apache Struts uh, framework into the actual application that was used by Equifax, causing causing the vulnerability to become apparent and be exploited uh, in production. What is happening, I think, in modern development, developers don't actually uh, code that much anymore. It's Developers are more assemblers of code than they are writers of code, in the sense that they take chunks of, of code and chunks of other libraries and other subcomponents, and they use them in their applications. And that's exactly what we want. That code reuse paradigm is exactly what we want because it significantly speeds up the, the development um, life cycle. It significantly speeds up the time it takes to bring new products to market. It significantly increases the value the developers bring to their business. The problem here is by using code you haven't written, you inherit the risk that's, that's in that code. 
and you bring that into your application. And not only that, but if the developer of the library that you're including included libraries of their own, you get a daisy chaining effect of security risk. And so, yeah, a thousand eyes definitely make the bug shallower, but a thousand eyes looking at my code at the application that I've written are very different than a thousand eyes looking at the struts code that was written or a thousand eyes looking at a library that struts included themselves right and that daisy chasing that chaining effect is a big big problem is it too much to ask an organization like equifax if they're going to fork struts for their own application let's say to do a comprehensive code audit what's interesting there is that i think we're past the stage and age where you can look at every single line of code that you write or include that you include into your application or is included into the components that are included in your application that is an exponential growth of things you need to secure and that model is very very difficult to achieve now i'm not saying ignore it what I am saying is use automated tools like software composition analysis tools to actually go through and look at the libraries you're using and attempt to only use secure libraries or libraries that have a better track record, things like that. But the reality is here that you also have to layer on operational security controls, right? You have to layer on runtime protection controls that bridge the gap between when those individual flaws are found at the code level and when they're executed or when they're actually uh, hit or targeted in the production environment, right? So it's a combination of both runtime and SDLC, Secure Development Lifecycle, layers of, of protection. Uh, Andrew, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, just to, to add on to that, I, I think we're moving past this paradigm of being able to find all the bugs in the code before it goes to production, right? Like this concept that the way we did application security in the past was, let's just make perfect code and let's, you know, let's find all the bugs before before we ship it. It doesn't, it doesn't work when the development teams are growing uh, at an extremely fast rate. Um, it doesn't work when we're adding more lines of code than, than we've added in the past and we're adding it faster now with the introduction of things like Agile and DevOps and Cloud. Like the movement is to make it so that these teams can be more Agile and make more... Um, more more apps faster um and so this is this is it's a real problem the industry has to sort of evolve to saying hey let, let, we need to sort of assume that we have uh, vulnerabilities in our code and then the name of the game for how you uh, create kind of a defensive strategy is more around prioritization um rather than you know sort of sticking your fingers in all the holes um that, that are there so in this case, um, the vulnerability, again, that um, was exploited was one that was first uh, identified back in early March. There was a tremendous amount of attention to the vulnerability and to uh, attempts to exploit it back in the you know, March and April time period. How is it that a large and fairly high-profile company uh, like Equifax would have a, this vulnerability exposed so far, you know, knowing that it was being attacked so, so long after the fact. Yeah, this is um, this is something that's pretty near and dear to our hearts. Is is that web application security in general um, has has not been given the the type of focus um, within a lot of organizations that you know I can't speak specifically to Equifax um, in terms of how they handled um, and were investing in that, you know, the Apache Stretch vulnerability discovery six months ago in the first place. But you, you kind of see this across the board that if you look at um, investment that's been made um, in, in the application security programs across all companies, um, the data shows it's, it's only 3% of security budgets are being spent on that space. Um, and yet if you look sort of on the other side of, of the house on, on the actual sort of business and technology teams, 
the largest area of investment within these organizations is actually building more um, more software and building more teams to build more software in the first place. So there's there's really a, a mismatch in terms of both where the uh, where the defensive uh, resources are being put, um, and they don't really match where the the technology is is the new technology being created. So. You know, the the other piece on top of this is that it's not just about sort of, um, you know, Apache Strut's uh, vulnerability um, and how to sort of manage that. But uh, God, you, you look at you look at the last five years of Verizon data breach reports and it's 40 to 40 to 30 percent of all vulnerability um, uh, successful breaches. They're happening at the application layer in the first place. So this is, it's something that the industry is aware of that um, breaches keep happening in these spaces. Um, but we're, we're sort of dangerously behind in terms of how we're funding um, the web application security space overall. Uh, why is that? I mean, why do, why does web application security somehow slip off the radar as a priority for organizations? Again, given the track record, there's a couple different responses to that. We've been we've been trying to learn this from from our customers in the first place. But number one is, I think security budgets are they they maintain their spend in a lot of legacy areas that that we've been spending in the past, which is really the security of network hardware components. Um, that that's primarily been where we've um, we've invested in in the past, and it's we just we haven't seen those budgets change. Um, I, I think the other piece that's that's hard about application security is that you have to work with um, with people within organizations, and you know a lot of the organizations that we're working with now, they've got forty different development teams. Like I was just talking to uh, you know a customer the other day, forty different development teams, and there's only two security folks on the application side that's supposed to support all forty of those. So wow. there, there, there's definitely on one side there's a people problem. We've known about the people problem for a long time that it's hard to. Um, you know, it's hard to to hire great security folks in the first place. They just don't grow on trees. Um, and but but on the other side, you have development groups where more and more people are are both going into that field. But it's 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 growing at at, at a much more uh, rapid pace. And so I think that's uh, it makes it particularly hard to make an investment in that area when. Um, you know, when the mentality has always been, well, we just need to have an application security person that is, you know, running bug reports and finding the bugs and being able to get that back into the developer's hands. It doesn't scale when you have two people to 40 development teams. And that's an, that's not an uncommon ratio that we've seen. It's scale. It's education. It's understanding where the problems lie. And it's a bias toward what we've always done, right? Um I think I think uh, uh, many many security folks say, you know what? We've bought network security gear for decades. We're going to continue to buy network security gear, right? I'm not going to lose my job by buying network security gear. It's, it's like the old "I'm not going to lose my job by buying IBM" adage. Uh, but at the end of the day, it may be time to uh, you know to buy something new, to buy something innovative, and to look and actually match your spend to where the risk uh, risk is aligned. Paul, Paul, I, th- I think the other thing that's that's particularly hard in the app the, the appsec space is as application security uh, engineers, a lot of times like you don't build the application, you don't maintain it, you don't deploy it, and yet you're the one that's you know solely responsible for being um, for being providing the security of that application, right? And so. It, it, this is where a lot of when we talk to folks in the application security space, we say, hey, you know, th- this is a change that needs to happen within your organization. And it, it's the change is 
instead of AppSec as like, hey, you own all of security for these um, for these digital assets that you didn't produce or don't maintain in the first place, it's that your job as an application security professional is really enabling and putting the tools in the hands of your development teams so that they can actually have responsibility over their own applications that they're creating, right? Yeah. And I think there's some hope here because the hope is, as you've seen what's happened in the sort of DevOps movement, that, that that's a lot what's happened, is that the, the, the point of DevOps movement, or a lot of the point is, hey, let's, let's make it so that we can give developers as much uh, you know, power and, um, and the tools that they need to be able to move as fast as they want to launch new application code, right? But what's come along with that is, okay, you know, we'll give you those tools, but you then also have to harbor some of the responsibility around what it means to have performant code, have that code be reliable, make sure that um, you, know, you have to take on some of the operational responsibility of, of shipping that code yourself. And so I think the sort of path has been laid for those same developers and those same DevOps teams to also have to take on the responsibility of security if they are trying to move as fast as they as they are trying to do to, to keep up with sort of business competitive reasons. Well, well, guess what? Like you also have to take on the responsibility of uh, of security as well, right? And so, right. That, you know, it's a it's a it's a big movement because. You know, it changes the role a lot of the actual job of the of the security person, um, which you know, change can always be scary. But but again, the hope here and a lot of the reception that we're starting to see is developers care more about security than they ever have. Like this this old reputation that developers don't like security, I think is wrong. Like developers, they they care about security. They just don't like the process and the you know the hindrance that security has always played a part in their job function. Um, and what they really want is security people that are really going to work with them and empower them to do the job that they that they need to do. I know uh, Vericode had some data that came out recently on kind of a survey of security uh, as a part of undergraduate computer science programs and kind of the education that our computer science engineers uh, graduating get. And even at this late date, you know, 2017, it, you know, we are turning out engineers who uh, may not have had much exposure. And, and by not much, I mean, maybe measured in hours across a four-year undergraduate degree talking about information security. Uh, it's surprising for two reasons. Number one is there's been so many, obviously, so many breach reports that have come out in the news. So it's, you know, it's that the awareness of security breaches is at, at its highest point that, that it's ever been. But then number two, the the, the young engineers that I talk to and, and a lot in our business, we, we end up uh, working as much with development teams as we do with security teams. The developers are quite interested in learning more about this. So I think there's um, there's certainly an appetite to learning more Maybe maybe there's just not um, you know enough teachers to be able to actually teach these things. I think it's also a function of uh, of spend at the enterprise level, guys. Um, you know, we can't. I don't feel we can only rely on our academic institutions and academic background to educate our development forces on security. Uh, as you can see, for the last decade, we've been trying that routine, and it really hasn't gotten us too much further. I mean, I think progress has been made, but not to the point where you can say that every developer that comes out is well-educated in the security and, and how to build secure applications. The reality here is to match 
the spend at the enterprise level, even at the education of your developers, at the uh, tools, at the resources available to your developers to where the risk really lies. And if the risk truly lies in the application layer, like we're seeing where 30% of all breaches come from the application layer attacks, why are we not spending the dollars there to match them, whether it's educational dollars, tool dollars, human resource dollars, et cetera? But 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 Tyler, I, I think this comes back to another thing that that I think hasn't really been talked about specifically in this this Equifax breach, and, and it doesn't really get talked about in most breaches in general, which is this you know time to detection. Is that um, you know we, we, a lot of the story has been like, well, you know, why did it take Equifax so long after they learned about the breach um, to tell to tell their consumers? There's a number of different reasons that, that I think are very practical about why that that can happen. Um, but the fact that it took two and a half months for them to even discover that the breach was going on in the first place, what what this to me speaks of, and and a that that's not um, you know two and a half months is not outside of sort of industry averages. I've seen averages you know from around 90 days to 180 days. So in some ways, Equifax could be said that they you know they found it faster than than most, um, but. Uh, you know, it gets back to Tyler, like, you know, why is there not uh, more of an investment that's happening at the AppSec space right now? Well, if you don't, if you don't have an awareness of the attacks that are going on there in the first place, um, you know, which, which I, I would argue that this sort of mean time to detection rate is really um, indicative of that, you know, if it takes you two and a half months to, to realize that there's an attack, you probably don't have visibility into where that attack has even happened in the in the first place. We've seen a lot of vulnerabilities within re- recently in recent months, specifically with struts. I think there was a, a remote code execution vulnerability that was uncovered in July as well. Why, in particular, now are we seeing a lot uh, from this particular platform? Is it is it evidence of more research into that? Uh, or is it sort of the cyber criminals, you know, Eye of Sharon or something that suddenly just focuses on one open source platform and, and starts uh, digging in? These things come in waves. When I was uh, a much younger security guy and much younger pen test, uh, pen test guy, we saw SendMail getting hit left and right. It was a constant bug. SendMail was kind of the biggest joke. Biggest joke in the industry in, in kind of the early 90s, right? Everybody targeted SendMail. Well, it comes in chunks and it comes in waves, right? Then Apache got ripped up for years. Then IIS got ripped up for years. And, you know, I think it's a function of uh, trying to capture some of the lower hanging fruit uh, from an attacker perspective, right? Where you go where there's fruit to be gleaned. Um, as soon as you get too high up in that tree and you got you to gotta really start digging to find some of these executable uh, type flaws and vulnerabilities, then, you, you know, you might go somewhere else. So I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, Struts is any worse than any other code libraries out there or any other frameworks out there. It just happens to be the, the targeted flavor of the week most recently because people are finding fruit there. Fruit There's fruit there that is that to bear that attackers can utilize to capture records and to right. compromise sites. So, well, and I feel like we've seen this over and over again, where it's like, look, new vulnerability comes out. Um, you know, there, there, we have a we have a patch that comes to those things. Everybody is like, okay, like we've solved this patch, but then you know, we've we just keep seeing this that it's it's more about the process within organizations or um, you know the, the lack thereof really that makes it so that you know we might know about these things, but we don't actually get them patched in the first place, and so. You know, like Tyler said, this is just, it's the low-hanging fruit. It's the easiest thing for attackers to be able to go and find. And so why why wouldn't you? Uh, there's been criticism of Equifax and other organizations for spending a lot of money lobbying to try and prevent 
um, you know, or water down data breach legislation or laws at the federal level that might uh, impose stricter standards on data brokers. Um, do you think this is an incident that may have been prevented with stiffer laws and regulations around how data is collected and stored? You know, uh, if you look at sort of the history of, of technology policy, um, technology policy at any type of sort of government level, whether it's federal, state, or otherwise, it's always behind behind where the technology moves. So, uh, you know, the sort of broader question of do we need some type of government inter- intervention to have sort of more policy enforcement on um you know, ensuring that people have a certain level of uh, of security controls baked into what they do? Um, probably yes, right? Like, as we're learning more about the industry and learning more about some of the vulnerabilities, that that's going to happen. But w- the policy is always going to be behind where the technology is. So we're always going to be playing catch up. And I think that that type of storyline of being like, hey, sh- you know, should we have more regulation? That's always going to be applicable. Whether or not it would have actually stopped uh, this specific vulnerability, I-, I-, I think that's impossible. To It's impossible to say. Tyler? You asked that question of, of 10, 20 different people. You're going to get 10, 20 different answers on the efficacy of policy and whether it would have uh, been effective in this particular case. I agree with Andrew. Uh, policy always is a laggard. It never... Policy, in my eyes, policy has always set minimum bars to success. Would it have caught this? Tough to tell. Would it have enforced uh, a certain level of patching that might have caught it? Would it have enforced a certain level of uh, runtime web protection that would have caught it? It's sincerely, it's very difficult to tell whether it would have been effective or not. But the reality is it always, policy always sets a minimum bar. And it's just where the where that arbitrary minimum bar ends up landing would determine whether it would have caught this for this particular incident or not. Okay, uh, final question for both of you. Uh, you know, Signal Sciences obviously has a pretty impressive customer roster. How would you say the Equifax and, and Struts news has sunk in with them? And what lessons, if any, are being gleaned from this, both on the response side? Clearly, there's a lot of lessons to be learned there, but also on the detection and protection side. The short-term answer is that it's only been a week, so I think we're still learning about it. But but the, the, the longer-term answer is that this is it's the same type of um, lessons, I feel like, that we're learning from any one of these major breaches, which is, uh, again, detection is a big problem like we're we're bad as an industry and and you know the 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 best security people that we talk to if you ask them like hey do you feel like you know if an attack was going on right now you would you would know about it the the best people um you know they'd probably say no or some version of like you know i i just i don't know because i don't have perfect visibility into my systems but i would say the most common answer that you probably get within these organizations is is yes right like that they're in some ways, uh, we have a false sense of confidence about their ability to find um, any type of vulnerability, and, and specifically at the web application layer, um, that, that I think people are overconfident about their security posture there. So I, I think, if anything, th- th- this is really giving um, giving ammo to the folks in-house that, that really do care about and do know how um, you know, how little uh, visibility or uh, detection capabilities they have at the application layer um, to, to go to their teams and say, hey, this is something we really need to elevate in priority. It's kind of the cybersecurity Dunning-Kruger effect or something, right? Where the, <laughs> the worse your detection is, the more, the better you think it is. Uh, yeah, Tyler, what were you going to say? 
I was just going to say it's it's a combination of people, processes, and tools, right? You can't you can't level up one without leveling up everything else. And the idea here is you should take an innovative approach to all of them. Let's not stand on our laurels of what we've done for the past decade in, in application security specifically because we're still seeing a high quantity of breaches. Let's look at doing it in a new way. Let's look at doing people a new way, educating people a new way. Let's let's look at putting in new processes, shortening time to remediation, and let's innovate even on the tools we use as far as visibility and actually putting in protections that work. And I think, I think if enterprises start to take a, a truly innovative look at how they spend their their security dollars, where they spend their security dollars, and the tools that they choose to use it on, they'll be more effective in the long run. Tyler and Andrew, thanks for coming in and speaking to us at the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks for having us. Andrew Peterson is the founder and CEO of Signal Sciences, and Tyler Shields is the vice president of marketing and strategy. Up next, more eyes than ever are pouring over open source software like Apache Struts looking for security holes like the ones hackers exploited at Equifax. But Mike Pittenger of the firm Black Duck Software says it's not cyber criminals, but security professionals who are doing most of that work. If you look at, at uh, NVD, uh, almost all of those vulnerabilities are found exclusively by uh, security researchers. I mean, it is, the, it is the playground for security researchers, right? I mean, 15 years ago, there might have been two or 300 people in the world who were capable of doing manual code review to find security issues. And now we're we're you know we're, we're minting them every year out of universities, yeah. and uh, Oracle's not going to give you their code to to you know to practice on. So open source becomes that uh, that sandbox where they where they learn how to do this and improve their skills. And uh, you know it's badge of honor. It's all of that. Uh, it's all of that stuff. So I I went through and did a search on NVD for you know all of the vendor names, all of the product names. So IBM check marks. Uh, HP four to five error code, uh, web inspect, you know, uh, you know, right down the line. And, you know, there was something like, I can't remember, 80,000 or so. Um, 63 returns came back with a vendor or product name in it. 50 of those were for vulnerabilities in the tools themselves. And 13 uh, had, or 12 or whatever the remainder was, was for uh, the, the language that something along the lines that this could be follow, found with a properly configured fuzzer, which led me to believe that the researchers, you know, found something they thought looked squirrely and then used the fuzzer to to either, you know, prove or disprove the presence of a vulnerability. But the rest were individual security researchers or security research teams. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you know, Google has a big team, IBM has a team, but uh, but they're not, you know, running uh, they're not running OpenSSL through uh, AppScan and finding, you know, Hercule even today. <laughs> What do you think the response of companies that are maybe using a platform like Struts is uh, as a result of this? I mean, does this uh, does this fundamentally change the way they look at security and patching issues? Well, I think that there, there are two parts to that. You know, um, I think if the question is, will they continue to use open source? If the answer is, of course they will. I mean, if you think of an application being 80% open source, do you really want to increase the size of your development teams by 5x? in order to write all of that custom code instead of using open source. It lowers development costs, it accelerates time to market. The issue isn't the insecurity of the, of the component or the framework. It's the fact that in this case, Equifax was using something and had no idea they were using it or just ignored the security bulletins about it. And, and it's not a, a simple challenge necessarily because you know, the average commercial application that we looked at last year had 147 components. 
uh, unique components. So you take that and you multiply, you know, and you say, okay, well, I've got to track 147 components. There are two or 3,000 new vulnerabilities in open source every year. That becomes pretty tough for one product, one, one application. If you've got, you know, 100 or 1,000, it becomes really hard. So I think, the, you know, the lesson here is it's not to, you know, be worried about open source. It's to, it's to have visibility into what you're using. And this is called out in every um, regulatory standard, every, uh, you know, secure application lifecycle thing you see. It doesn't necessarily say, geez, you got to track your open source, but it says you have to uh, be, a, you know, have a, uh, a risk assessment and you have to have a plan for addressing these. This is kind of the underlying theme, whether it's GDPR, HIPAA, PCI, uh, Gremlin's Black, you know, any of these things. It's, you, you've got to understand what data you've got to protect. You've got to understand what the, the, the threats are to that or the risks are to that, and you have to have a plan for addressing those. And, and I think the common way that people have done that is the way they're going to, most companies are responding now, right? They're running around with their hair on fire, pointing Nessus or Metasploit or Nexpos, you know, or Flawless at everything in their environment with this uh, struts rule, trying to figure out where they're using it and whether or not they're vulnerable. And tomorrow they're going to do the same thing because, you know, another vulnerability is going to come out. And Monday they're going to do the same thing because another vulnerability is going to come out. You know, we joke about it, but the automotive industry solved this problem 100 years ago. You keep track of the components that you use. And when there's an issue, you know where you're using them. When, when, when the Takata airbag recall happened, you didn't have to, every car in the world didn't have to go in to have their onboard computer query to see if they're using the Takata airbag which is kind of the model we do in, in, in application or in IT security. They knew exactly which VIN numbers were affected. Right. The software build the materials as it were. Right. Where, is that where most companies fall down in your opinion, that they just do not have a, a firm grasp of what's in the, the cake, so to speak, and so they're left exposed? Or is it just a, a sense of urgency or a lack of tooling? Like why are companies as big and wealthy as Equifax uh, struggling with this? I, I think it's visibility to the code that they're using because it's hard to control, right? I mean, you could have all of the policies in the world, uh, but unless you have controls in place, it's very easy for a development team, not maliciously, but just to, you know, to bypass that. You know, I could tell you, you can use open source project foo version 2.2. And, and if you're a developer, you're happy because, you know, you don't hear the second half of that sentence. You know that you can use foo and it's been in your, it's in your workspace and you've been using it for three years and you know, the APIs. So it's a very hard thing to control without controls in place something that will alert you if if a policy violation happens. So I think it's a, uh, the other statistic I'll throw at you from the, the uh, open source and commercial software study we did was that that 147 components seems large. It seemed really large to our customers. It was when, when they were able to give us their, their, what they think is their bill of materials, which is only, uh, maybe 25% of the time, most of the time they have no idea. But when they're able to do that, on average, it represents about 45% of what we find. So we're finding more than two times as much soft open source as, as the customers think they're using. Wow. So it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of having visibility to what you're using and then um, understanding the threat space. So uh, you could, uh, I mean, this, this one was breached after, you know, 60 days. The average age of the vulnerabilities we found in open source used in the commercial software was over four years old. So, wow. so maybe it was good when it went into the code base. Maybe it wasn't. But um, you know, with two or three thousand vulnerabilities each year, what are you going to do about that? 
and you need to be tracking that threat space so that when new vulnerabilities are disclosed, you have a, a awareness of it. I mean, this may have been this Equifax application may have been rock solid uh, as of February 28th, but man, it was it had a big hole in it, you know, as of March 6th, and that's you know that's software. It doesn't matter if it's if it's Equifax or commercial software or or open source software. It, security is not is is not a permanent thing in software. Mike Pittenger, thanks so much for coming in and speaking with us at the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks a lot, Paul. And finally, should a music major really not be able to serve as chief security officer? That was the debate swirling around Equifax chief security officer Susan Malden ahead of her sudden retirement from the company last week. While plenty of technology industry pros stepped forward to defend the idea and even the wisdom of having a chief security officer with a background that wasn't in information security, Security Ledger wondered why this particular conversation popped up in relation to this particular CSO and whether something else wasn't at work behind the outrage. With us in the studio to debate those questions, we have Chris Roberts, who is the chief security architect at the firm Acalzio, and Deidre Diamond, the founder and CEO of CyberSN. Yeah, thanks for having us again, sir. It's great to have you. So we're talking today about the kind of reaction. There have been so many reactions to this Equifax. One kind of um, subtext that came out was around their chief information security officer, who is a woman and also, as it turns out, has a a background in music, not computer science or or engineering. And there was, um, from some corners of the internet, a reaction to that, a pretty negative one. Uh, Oh, well, of course they got breached. And I'd start with you, Chris. You had a pretty strong reaction to it and maybe just kind of reprise that for us using as family-friendly language as you can. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think my reaction online, even I think even on LinkedIn, which I consider to be my civilized reaction, was uh, pretty blunt. I was... um, uh, to your point, you know, somebody had taken a snippet of that that particular lady's LinkedIn profile, put it up there, and it basically expanded the fact that they did not think that somebody with a music major should be in charge of security and should have anything to do with security and not surprised that they got breached and a whole bunch of other things. To which point, I think I explained exactly which orifice they could put their head in that their elitist view was absolutely incorrect and how dare they, given the fact that so many of us in security have kind of worked our way in, clawed our way up, and, you know, we stand on the experience that we have and we build on the experience of others as opposed to, you know, racking up seven years worth of debt in a, uh, in a college environment. And it's not to say the college is bad, it's just this realm that we have created over the last 20 plus years has only recently lent itself to certification. And most of us have got, you know, the scars and bruises from so many years of experience, which arguably can for as much, if not more in some cases. The information security space has a reputation as a place for, as, as I like to say, sort of misfits and dreamers, people who come from all different types of background. Deidre, you run a placement firm that finds jobs for these people. Is, is that still the case? Is that true? It's true in that those people exist. It's not in, true in that there aren't others. So 
there are 35 different jobs within cyber that we have categorized. And of the extreme technical roles, you know, there's a lot to say about those folks um, you know, falling under that stereotype and they're, uh, they're sort of the backbone of the cyberspace and the beginners and the folks that, you know, sort of began. However, there's also all kinds of different personas. It's, it's not one. That's the one that media focuses on. That's the one that we stereotype. It is not all that exists by any means. What did you make of the debate? I mean, I know you read some of it online uh, about this woman, Susan Malden, who is a chief security officer at Equifax and has a bachelor's and master's of fine arts in in music composition from University of Georgia. Um, What did you make of that uh, debate? Is that, in your mind, a fair, fair game or a little bit misplaced and misinformed? Oh, absolutely misplaced, misinformed. It's fascinating to me that anybody that understands this industry who is in this industry thinks that an executive is degree in terms of in cyber is what they rely on every day. It's experience. And so it's absolutely ridiculous. What really interested me the most from this was that, you know, this was a top 10 vulnerability. So we think, or what we've heard so far. And in our you know, circle, that is sort of what gets done on a daily basis. Your top patches, it sort of never gets overlooked. It's what you do when you come in if it's a, if it's a top 10, right? And you're talking two months of that being open. The first thing I thought of is what I see every day in the, in the workplace, which is understaffed and underbudgeted insecurity. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't that doesn't take away that she's negligent, that the leadership in that company is negligent. I mean, to miss a top 10 vulnerability is negligence, for sure. If that's what happened, that's a problem. It's not because of her degree, and it's not to take away that she is responsible. When I went online to see how many jobs are open in cyber at, at Equifax, Equifax now, there's 17. 17. Yeah. That's the problem. And when you think about our retention stats of 12 to 18 months, when you look at an organization like this and you see 17 roles on their website today, I think to myself, they are completely understaffed. And that's why a top 10 vulnerability gets missed, not a degree. Chris, I was going to ask you, how fair is it to blame the CISO or the CSO for, you know, missing a struts patch, a 10 criticality struts patch? Is that you know, it's tough because you've got two attitudes. You've got the captains who go down with the ship. They are ultimately responsible. You know, at the end of the day, it's their team that should be doing the work, doing everything else. But one of the arguments I, you know, a very positive argument we had online was, honestly, on a day-to-day activity, how much is that CISO going to actually rely upon the management and the staff and the directors to tell them, hey, all is good? I mean, how many of us have put, you know, our version of the TPS report together to send up to leadership to say all's good? So the failure is potentially at, you know, whoever's watching the borders, whoever's looking at the external interfaces, or potentially the vendor or the supplier that's doing the work for them. You know, a lot of companies are now obviously, you know, the MSSP model comes into play, and somebody else is looking at your perimeter to allow you to focus more on the business. Therefore, you get a nice TPS report from them going, hey, we're all clear. And as a CISO, you have to put the trust in those people 
that they're doing their job properly. So is it the fact they didn't have the right people? There's obviously a dearth of people around, so they didn't have enough staff. And at which point in time, it's like, okay, did somebody just not do their job? At which point should the CISO take the fall or should the CISO not take the fall? Because again, you know, maybe the CISO has been banging on the CFO's table or Mm -hmm. the CEO's table going, hey, I need those resources. We're not protected. I don't have enough protection to, I don't know, get rid of an admin admin ID and password in South America, let alone all the other vulnerabilities that have cropped up over the last couple of years. So they might have been doing the best job they possibly can and they're losing the argument for whatever business, financial, economic reason. So that's my thoughts on it. Chris, uh, did that TPS report have a cover page on it or not? <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. You got, the, you got the memo, right? You got the memo about that? Oh, my God, yeah. But that's, I mean, that's what it falls down to when you think about it. I mean, that really is what it comes down to. <laughs> Chris, you you had a, a typically atypical path into the security world. Maybe talk a little bit about that. And if people don't know you, you're the guy with kind of the multicolored beard at the security con, one of the most respected security researchers out there. But you didn't go right down this, the, the middle of the road. Um, so talk a little bit about how you, you made your way to the industry. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, so I started messing with computers when I was 9, 10 years old. I spent a year at boarding school messing with a ZX80 and a ZX81 that another kid had brought with him. So we were building device drivers and various other things for it. At 14 or 15, I think it was, um, I hacked into a bank in the UK and I had my you know, Commodore 64 and Atari confiscated because you know, we'd, we'd done the things that we probably shouldn't have done back then. And this was you know, late 70s, well, early 80s at that point. So it went from there. I left school when I was 15. You know, I, I left, I came out with a bunch of O-levels and a bunch of OA-levels. I left school at 15. Um, I went into the workforce for a variety of home family reasons, then did military time, and then kind of went back into the IT infrastructure. I kind of went back in as a screwdriver-wielding techie, floppy disk in one hand, screwdriver in the other hand. First line, then did obviously network stuff, worked up from there. I was very fortunate that a couple of companies I worked for put me through, you know, the the what was the Microsoft certified stuff back in the uh, late mid late nineties, my CIFSP and the MCT and some of the other CCIE stuff. But I I worked my ass off. It was one of those where this is an interesting environment. I spent a year ish back at Oxford messing around with stuff on the crypto side and mathematics side, but I, I don't have a degree. I don't have an undergrad. The only thing I had to my name was, you know, a bunch of certificates which have expired over the years, but I kind of took the life version and yeah, kind of went that direction, to be honest. And as you look around you at your peers, is, is that an unusual story or are there other stories like that or similar to that? And, and I'll note, um, you know, one of the most well-respected hackers in, in North America, Peter uh, Zaitko or Mudge. Um, yeah. You know, Berkeley School Mudge, of Music, Mudge is right? The same, yeah. Yeah, Berkeley School Mudge of Music. Mudge is exactly so. the same, yeah. And you've got other guys. Um, there are so, it's actually been interesting because I, I actually copied the rant from LinkedIn and dropped it out onto Twitter as well. And I've had some ridiculously good conversations. And there's a lot of people out there who clawed their way up, worked their way up. It, it's the mindset, you know, it's all about the, the human, to Deirdre's point, you know, the, the certificate is good, but the human behind it is what counts. And if that human's got a thirst for knowledge, that, that means more to me than any certificate. It's how, it's how we used to recruit. When I had a former company of mine we did our recruitment based on who the human was. I can teach you all the tech mm-hmm. in the world, 
that if you're not the person who's inquisitive or who likes to find 10 different ways into something, this isn't the career for you as far as we were concerned for what we yeah. were looking for. Deidre, um, you're the recruiter in the room. How do companies who are looking for talent balance a unconventional uh, resume, let's say, with the need? Well, it's uh, every company's different. There's no, you know, universal process that uh, organizations have been able to get behind and 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 utilize, such that you could say there's there's you know one or two or three even models. And so it really depends. I can tell you that a degree. In cyber, if you're going into the financial world or the healthcare world and you want to get into leadership, it matters. Still today, doors can be shut without it at the executive level. Uh, in the software business world, the, the innovation of building products, it's, you know, nobody even looks at it. In fact, um, in a lot of environments, degrees and certifications, particularly if you're talking about folks like Chris, people see it as, uh, why'd you put the, you know, you shouldn't even put your certs on your resume if you have them. <laughs> right, Chris? It's almost like, it's almost like yep. what's wrong with you? You can't possibly be one of the best if you're putting certs and degrees on your resume. And so it's a fascinating, uh, you know, thing to run a, you know, a staffing agency that only works within cyber. And that's why I really created this 35 jobs matrix because they're, what everybody needs to understand is there's lots of different roles. And, uh, and, and there's different requirements for those roles. Let me, let me ask you this, because I look at Susan Malden's um, LinkedIn profile or what, what there is of it in, in some of these posts, because I think she, she made it private after this stuff started circulating, which, which I think in some ways is a mistake, because it seems like she's not standing by her credentials. But, you know, you look at her previous employment, yeah. uh, First Data Corporation, SunTrust Bank, Hewlett Packard. I mean, you know, clearly this is somebody who has worked at, you know, very reputable organizations and I'm guessing built built up her, her resume and her expertise around information security. You know, reading some of the comments, I wonder, is this about Susan being a music major or frankly, is this about Susan being a woman? And I, I ask you honestly, I wonder if we would be having this conversation if she were the CISO with a similar, with the exact same resume, but a man. Yeah. Well, you saw my email to you. It said, oh, please tell me it's not a woman. And I didn't respond to that. Yeah. Because it's like, a, I know yeah. you didn't. I, I found would, it myself. Uh, I'd lay money. We wouldn't be having the conversation, which is right. another thing that annoys the hell uh, out of me. I do wonder uh, how much of a part of this debate is really the other debate, which is about women in the workplace or women in roles that have traditionally been done by men and, and women being held to a higher standard than, than men are doing the same job. Yeah, well, if we want to use math as the law, right, we've got 1% of women that exist like in her role. There's 1% of her, 1% of me in cyber. And then there's 10% overall, and that includes any position. So, you know, the math says this is an overarching problem, right, Chris? I mean, women are... That's, we, I, didn't more realize, statistics. I didn't realize yeah. it was that low. That's yes. freaking ridiculous. Yes, and the statistics that came out from ISP squared. They're leaving. They're leaving faster than yeah. you know. Like they're leaving because of how they're treated. Just to clarify the statistics error, that was one percent women in in CXO positions, and then ten percent of women overall in information security. It's one percent of women in technical executive roles, and cyber is the is wow. it's one to four percent. Cyber is one percent in all of tech. It goes to four percent. 
I mean, it doesn't doesn't surprise me because, I mean, you think of where this industry came from and you think of where it's going. And, you know, on one minute we think we're making progress. On the next minute we're bashing our heads against the fact that some flipping Neanderthal makes a comment somewhere and you're like, what the hell are you playing at? So it's frustrating because it's, um, yeah, it's frustrating. We really, I was at a conference Oh gosh, several months ago now, and there was a there was some other conference going on, like in the, one of the other halls, and there were a number of us who sat there, put our feet up, and just watched the diverse, I guess, people that were coming in and out of this other conference. And most of us were sitting there going, "I wish we had such a diverse audience." Yeah, because we didn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, we you know, it's it's a mostly male, white male centric kind of an audience, and it's like, good God, what the hell could we be? if we had a more diverse, you know, culture inside that, and we're getting better at it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not bashing it, but we've got to recognize that we're our own worst enemies to some degree. We're getting better at having the conversation for sure. We're getting better at, at pointing to the problem and saying, this is a problem. I'm not sure to Deidre's point that we're getting better in terms of actually getting and keeping more people in the field. But I agree with you, Chris, we're definitely getting better talking about it keeping them in the field. I mean, that's, and then the question is, is you start taking a look back at, so where do we, where do we have to look at this? I can't remember. Somebody showed me some statistics not too long ago about the number, you know, my daughters, I got a, I got a 17 or 13 year old. My 13 year old's looking at me going, I don't want to go into your field. And I'm like, no, I can't fair blame you in some ways, but yeah. I'm going to help you as best as I can because there's not as much encouragement at the school level and the college level and the high school level. So it's like, we almost have to go back to that area and go, hey, what do we need to do better to help the professors and the students actually come into this field more effectively? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I have to speak up here. We just, uh, the BrainBabe platform, Paul, which you know, of, I can't remember if you've mm-hmm. heard of it, Chris, but it's BrainBabe.org. It's a not-for-profit where we're working on these statistics that we're talking about, and we launched SteamCon Connection, and that is we're connecting STEAM students to conference jobs. So no more booth babes. So nobody has an excuse anymore. They can call me <laughs> and I will make sure that who's working those booths are interested, uh, you know, uh, students in all fields or all degrees of uh, going to school or anybody, quite frankly, I'm not going to tell somebody they can't, you know, uh, apply, but these jobs that we're giving to modeling agencies at yeah. our events. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, waste of a job when they're not interested. And number two, it adds to the problem of discrimination and, and sexual harassment, right? Because we've right. got all this sexualization going on. So, yeah, IST Squared Congress was our first event that we're staffing. Hacker halted. And let's just flip this on the on its head. I mean, Deidre, is it is it certainly is it a possibility that having a background or, or Chris, I think you're probably qualified to answer this as well, having a background in music or composition um, might actually really contribute to your job as a chief information security officer, or chief security officer. Obviously, it's not in and of itself enough to qualify you, but um, that type of background and schooling, can it be an asset to you in your career? Yeah. So for me, it's an absolute yes. In that if you're at an executive level in cyber, your job is managing people, culture, mindsets, and yes, of course, policies and procedures. The number one area we all or, or humans struggle in is the relationship. We see it in our retention stats that I mentioned earlier, and that is the the hardest piece of the job. And so having an arts background, having a, a background or, or a degree that's more around communication 
is a benefit. It helps. It doesn't mean that not having it is a problem or having it is a problem. It's just another angle of a part of the job that's difficult. I'll take the brainiac side of the concept on this one, which is I come from the math background, so problem solving. You think, what is music? Music is nothing more than basically problem solving at near real time. So the whole concept of being able to apply notes, apply yourself, and being able to do problem solving on a variety of different instruments. I mean, so many people I know can play four, five, six different instruments. It's crazy. So what that does for the brain and how it opens the brain up is huge for our industry. Um, and then to this point, you know, the ability for that person to actually be in a college-level situation where they have to obviously be articulate, they have to have eloquence, they have to have a level of understanding and communication. It's huge. I don't care whether you come from that background or whatever. Just the simple fact that you have that part of the brain that's getting exercised, yeah, that's perfect for me. So where do we go from here? I guess it's a perception problem that, you know, again, security industry people eat their own. How do we change that and um, make it more welcoming, not just to women and, you know, arts or humanities uh, folks, but also just to everybody, you know, bring more people in by maybe putting the knives away? So there's, for me, a couple of things. I think you, you hit it earlier on, uh, the lady from... From Acovax, you know, the fact she's taken her profile offline, I think I would really encourage you to put it back online and put something out there and say, yeah. hey, this is who I am. If you have a problem with me, love to have a conversation with you over a cup of tea, cup of coffee, or a drink of bloody scotch, number one. Number two, I'd love for her to put a flipping blog post out and actually really go through the what's, the why's, the how's. Not necessarily to defend herself, but go, hey, this is who I am. Now you know. Now you understand. That would be huge for me. Um, and quite honestly, uh, you know, as much as I want to taser people, Kathy Almond up in Buffalo won't let me do that. So <laughs> I'm not allowed to taser the, the Neanderthals. Put the taser away. I, I think it's <laughs> going to take more of us doing this kind of thing, being more positive, getting out there, doing the outreach stuff. I mean, getting into the universities, getting into the schools and saying, hey, this is who we are. Come and join us. We're not the Neanderthals, we're not the idiots, we actually know what the hell we're doing, and we'd love to have you come join us. And by the way, if an idiot does decide to troll you or become a Neanderthal, let us know, because we'll have a nice discussion about re-education. <laughs> uh, I think that we need to invest in recognizing that cyber divisions of our organizations are like no other division that we've ever seen or had before, and stop lumping them into, uh, you know, a, a department, being a, a department like everybody else. They're not. They're an emergency center. They operate under high stress. They are understaffed. They don't have the tools they need. I think this breach is a prime example of what it means to be understaffed. I don't say it because I own a staffing agency. I've built two software companies. I've been 13 years running a tech technical staffing agency that didn't do cyber. And I can tell you this is completely different. And w the biggest risk that we have every day beyond understaffing our teams is the culture that we put them in and expect them to be operating like everybody else, you know, work on, uh, you know, things day and night for three days and still be at an 8 a.m. meeting. I, I think we have to look at how we uh, simulate these folks into our businesses. And I think we must look at soft skills because, we are communicating so poorly with each other that we're actually uh, causing these retention rates. 63% of cyber professionals were recently 
that were recently um, spoken to about why they left their company. They said they would have stayed if there was respect and kindness. Wow. No joke. Wow. Chris, what are your thoughts on that? Security is everybody's problem now. It isn't the security guy who's always in the way. It's like, hey, this is all of our problems. This isn't going away with training once a year or any of that. Everybody's got to step up and go, hey, I'm going to own a bit of the security issue and I'm going to help everybody on this one. Therefore, what can we collectively, collaboratively do to make the situation better? Let me ask you a final question, and it's a tough one, which is Equifax is now in a very difficult position. I mean, clearly in the wake of this incident, you would imagine there are going to be changes at the very uh, top ranks of that company, just given how badly this all went for them. Um, uh, on the other hand, if the CIS or the chief security officer is let go, some may see it as a response to these criticisms about her uh, qualifications and, um, you know, her background rather than uh, for what happened. So uh, if you're Equifax, I guess, uh, how do you handle this? How do you handle Susan Malden? I think I would look at Susan and go, who, especially if I'm on the board, and go, who did you work with? Why did this happen? Did it happen because the CFO didn't provide mm -hmm. you with the resources? Did it happen because you were not eloquent enough to describe the situation? Did it happen because the board failed and put profit ahead of security? Um, I, you know, it's, the blame shouldn't necessarily fall to her if the CEO, CIO, CFO, or whoever else has failed to adequately understand the problem. Now, if she has failed to adequately communicate the problem, then yes, she should be held responsible. But yeah, a head should roll. But if the finance guy is not handing it over because they value profit over security, somebody needs to take the finance guy out and tar and feather him as far as I'm concerned. Deidre? Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, the, the, I'd agree. That, look, does she have the tools to know whether these things were patched? And does she have the, the talent to fill, to use the tools so that she knows if things are patched? Is this a negligence of her pay, paying attention or is this a negligence of her not having the staff? And if it's a negligence of her not paying attention, that's a clear, uh, you know, makes sense to me. Uh, if this is a negligence of, of talent and budget, well, I hope and, and I hope she's strong enough and we need to see CISOs doing this, CISOs doing this. We need to see them come out saying, I, you know, for X amount of time, I've been asking for X and I've submitted yeah. how many times, you know, like we must come forth as leaders and share because I can tell you how many times I hear from these executives on security and they say, well, I brought up the risk so many times that I was finally told if you bring it up again, there's a problem. And at that moment, what does one do? You know, if yep. one chooses to stay, you know, well, okay, then then bring forth the information. You know, stand your you just stand your ground or leave if that happens. Yeah. To you. I mean, this is what's happening out there, and so we need we need leaders like her uh, and others to really talk about what's going on because I would imagine that that's what's happened. I would imagine she's asked for the budget. I would imagine that. Uh, she's asked to use staffing agencies to fill her jobs, and she's been told no. I guarantee yeah. it. Or the I NSSP filed, or yeah, yes. exactly. I think you're right. Yes. Uh, and that, and to your point, it's one of those where you know, if you believe the principles of what you're doing, you unfortunately have that option: do you stay and still become mm -hmm. part of the problem, or do you leave 
And let's face it, there is <laughs> there is a wealth of people that would that would bring in a good CISO or a good individual or a good technically, but there's plenty of companies out there that are crying out for good talent. So it's not exactly as if you're leaving and have nowhere to go, especially if you walk into another organization and say, hey, these are the challenges I came up with last time. This is what was addressed and this is what was not addressed. How are you any different? I mean, those are interview questions to a prospective employer are going to be huge. They will give you an indication as to what's going to go on. Deidre Diamond, founder and CEO of CyberSN, and Chris Roberts, my brother from another mother, chief security architect at uh, Acalcio. <laughs> Thank you both for coming and talking to the Security Ledger. 